61. Okay. Okay, ladies, we're ready. You hum a few bars, we can take oh. over. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. <laughs> as we as the upward heaven shining gold, we may suffer pain and loss. Burdens only bring us blessings if we live in the shadow of the cross. Are you living in the shadow of the cross where the Savior took preaching don't call me up here but that won't be much help uh, amen amen well open your bibles to john chapter 10 and i appreciate you uh, excusing my tardiness i uh, was not checking the score of the football game so no i don't have any clue how the cowboys are doing my sons came in and said you know what the score is i said i have no idea and i don't have time right now so I had uh, some phone calls I had to make this afternoon and then some other things that came up. And uh, so I was just a little late in finishing up my message. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just got busy weeks like that. 
and you're in the last minute trying to finish out some thoughts and and uh, that that's how you know I, I do spend time preparing and, and when I have this piece of paper up here it's stuff that I have spent time preparing and uh, because I don't know what it is some guys can just open the Bible and preach and talk and they just have the gift I guess of I don't want to say gab because you know they're preaching as the Holy Spirit leads them but the Holy Spirit works differently with me um, I I have to prepare and and uh, and uh, what, what God wants me to say from a passage of Scripture just seems to prepare me through the week. Because if I get up here and uh, just open the Bible, it probably would not uh, be very clear, uh, for, for, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Well, we're in, in still in John chapter 10, and though we are still in John chapter 10, uh, starting tonight, verse 22, there's a change of scene. Uh, whereas up to this point, all the way up to verse 21, it was still in the time frame of fall and that Feast of Tabernacles that we had began looking at. The scene had been set in John chapter 7. Now what we see in verse 22 is it says actually that it is winter and now it is the Feast of Dedication. Now it's called the Feast of Dedication because it was a celebration every year in, uh, in, the, in the winter months to dedicate. Uh, celebrate the rededication, if you will, of their temple. Uh, in the early, well, I guess you would say the late centuries of the B.C. time area, right around 160 B.C., somewhere in there, there was a really cruel Greek ruler that came in and decimated their temple uh, and destroyed it. And, uh, and basically what happened is this group of, or this family in, uh, in Israel kind of took charge and there was this violent war uh, to where they kicked out these these Grecian rulers uh, it was it was the, the family by the name was family name by the way was called the Maccabees if you've ever heard of that before and uh, where they were able to take control back over of Israel and and reconsecrate their altars that had been decimated the temple that had been decimated the entire sacrificial had been sacrificial system had been decimated during the rule of this Greek, uh, this Grecian rulers, and uh, and if you're wondering where is this found in the Bible, it's not. This took place during the intertestamental time. So in between the writing of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament, uh, there's about 400 years of silence where God did not inspire anybody to write. Uh, but uh, they this this recording this is recorded in what's called the Book of the Maccabees or uh, the Apocrypha, sometimes you can find uh, some answers in, in, in that, or you can find the Apocrypha. That is probably all available on the internet. You can go to the World Wide Web and do a search for the, the Maccabees and find all about the history of that. And so anyway, this festival of dedication that is mentioned here in John chapter 10 is that. It's not an old, old festival that Moses had established or they had established among upon their entering of the promised land. This was a festival that the Jews established right around 165 B.C. You know what? They still celebrate it today, but they don't call it the festival of dedication. They call it Hanukkah. And that's, where that, that's what that word means. Hanukkah means dedication. And what they are actually celebrating when they celebrate Hanukkah, it's not giving of gifts, though they give gifts to celebrate it. They are celebrating the rededication, the reinstitution of their sacrificial system and their altars and their, and their, and their temple there in, uh, uh, in Jerusalem. 
And Jesus is attending this festival. What we're going to read is, Jesus doesn't hide, he doesn't go away, though he had faced some conflict, he had faced some confrontation back in the fall during the Feast of Tabernacles, even though it's been a month or so since that happened, now it's the festival of dedication, and what do we see? He is going into the temple. Let's, let's read real quick, John chapter 10, verse 22 through 42. It says, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence in this place. Lord, would you just show us furthermore about opposition and the opposition that you face? And Father, how you didn't avoid it, but instead you confronted it. And even in that, Lord, you were merciful. Lord, would you show us that same mercy tonight? Lord, would you show us from your word how to live like you and be like you? And also, Lord, how you are merciful upon us every single day. This is in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. So what we read is Jesus attends this festival he doesn't avoid the conflict. He doesn't avoid the confrontation. You may say, well, how did he know that it was coming? Well, he's God, uh, so he knows all things. But also, he was a pretty smart guy. And uh, at this point, you can assume, right? I mean, if you've had trouble in a certain place before, likely going to be trouble there again, right? And if you, know it's, if you know you've had it in the past, you can assume it's coming again. And so here he is, he is confronting it, he's going into it. It would have been real easy for him to stay where he was liked. It would have been real easy for him to go to the homes of his fans and just hang out and get oil poured on his head every day. 
but instead he went to where he would face confrontation and uh, where he would face opposition. Doesn't that sound familiar? Remember, when we face opposition in our lives, we are in good company. Jesus faced it as well, all the time. And, uh, and in fact, I want to show you four conflicts or four points of opposition Jesus faced in the Scripture in, in uh, these verses. And the first one is this. The first one was, they said, are you the Christ? There in verse 24, he said, they said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. The religious leaders knew that they were supposed to be looking for the Messiah. They were supposed to be looking for the Christ. And this is a, this is a, this is a word that is a throwback to the Old Testament, the, the Greek word that we translate, that they, tra we, I'm sorry, we translate to Christ is a transliteration of the Hebrew word they would have translated to Messiah. So Christ and Messiah are one and the same. They knew they were supposed to be looking for him. They were long looking for him. They were long waiting on him. He had been prophesied about. They were looking forward to it. And they were looking for three things from the Messiah, from the promised one, from the Christ. They were looking for signs of wonder. They were looking for deliverance from an enemy much like Moses delivered them from Egypt, and they were looking for confirmation that he had been sent by God. And I want to answer the issue with Jesus' three uses of these confirmations, but first, just the conflict and confrontation in this initial question from the Jews and their leaders is enough in itself to get our hairs on the back of our necks. And by the way, Jews, by the way, is a representative term. When it says that the Jews surrounded him, it doesn't mean the entire Jewish nation surrounded Jesus in that moment. But this is a representative term to represent the leadership of the Jews. We can go ahead and just plug right in there the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those that were in charge of questioning, okay, who are you and, and what do you want? And so here they are, and they're questioning him, and, and the question they're asking is, how long do you keep us in doubt? How long do you keep us in doubt? And here is the issue with this question. If Jesus had hemmed and hawed about his identity during his time on earth, it would be one thing. But as we've already pointed out, and as we read through the Gospels, what we see is God, uh, Jesus does not hem and haw about his identity as God. He has taught them of his connection to the Old Testament prophecies. He has told them flat out that he is the promised one, as did John the Baptist did as well. What they are accusing Jesus of is not being clear in his teachings. They are accusing him of being deceptive. Now put aside for a moment who it is they're talking to, by the way, God in the flesh. And here they are accusing him of deliberately pulling the veil over their eyes. And to a point they are right. But they are oh so wrong because that veil was not pulled over their eyes by Jesus Christ. It was pulled over their eyes by their own unwillingness to believe what they were seeing, to believe in what they were hearing, and make the connection that was already being made for them. God was there in their presence, and they didn't want any part of it. The second thing they say to him there is, tell us plainly. And they go one step further in that, and they're criticizing his teaching all the more when they say, tell us plainly. They're accusing Jesus for cluttered teaching. They're accusing him of clouding their thinking. But most of all, they are accusing Jesus of not telling them plainly. 
But what makes this all the more worse is not how we understand this word plainly, but when you look into the Greek language and understand what they're really saying. Because what this Greek word translates, that we're translating plainly, actually means is to be without boldness or to be without confidence. Jesus wasn't teaching with boldness and confidence, and that's why they couldn't understand what he was uh, teaching about. You see, it's not just cloudy teaching or unclear teaching, but weak teaching that they are accusing him of. They are accusing God in the flesh of teaching without boldness and confidence. Now, you can see the obvious issue with this accusation against God, but if you think back to some of the other gospel uh, stories of Jesus' life, what is one of the main things that they often said when Jesus would teach? They were drawn to him because of his boldness and the power of his teaching, right? That's the testimony given to us in the Gospels about Jesus' teaching. And so for them to now come and say, listen, you're teaching without boldness. You're teaching without confidence, so we can't really understand what you're saying. It's a claim against Jesus that doesn't hold water. The confrontation was unfounded, and Jesus does not back down from this confrontation, and instead, he immediately answers in verse 25. Remember, they said, how long will you keep us in doubt? Why don't you tell us plainly? And he immediately rebuts, I told you, verse 25. He doesn't him or haul there, does he? He doesn't hold back. He doesn't give them some proverbial teaching that's supposed to mix them up. He tells them, I told you. I told you. He has told them numerous times in the gospel that Jesus drew the connection of himself to the promised Messiah. Now, some are a bit elusive, but some of them are direct. For instance, just a little bit earlier in the, in the gospel of John, John chapter 8, Verses 58, in fact, you can turn there, it's just a couple of pages over. Jesus makes this statement. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when we looked at that scripture, I told you, Jesus wasn't just making some silly statement. He was drawing a connection to himself and to God himself and that promised one that was to come. John the Baptist had also proclaimed Jesus' identity, as I already said. Remember what one of the things that... John the Baptist said about Jesus, Behold, here comes the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. But we really don't have to dig at all. You see, again, they had just asked him, When will you tell us plainly? And out of his mouth he says, I told you. That in itself is a very plain answer to their question. Are you the Christ? I told you that I am. And if that isn't plain confirmation of his identity, then I don't know what they're looking for. Jesus was not hiding his identity. He was not trying to keep himself from them, except for a few times in the Gospels where he tells his disciples, now don't go tell anybody. There's never a moment where Jesus denies his identity. Not only had he told them, though, but he had shown them as well. Not only had he told them, I told you who I am, but he had shown them. I told you a moment ago they were looking for three things. One of the things they were looking for was signs, miraculous wonderings, uh, uh, wa- signs of wonder, I mean. He had, not, uh, sho- he had shown them 
signs of wonder. Just in the Gospel of John, what have we seen? He turned water into wine. He had healed the blind. And in the next chapter, what's he going to do in chapter 11? He's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. The problem is that it was not the miracles they wanted to see necessarily. He did them wrong, or he did them at the wrong time, or he did them for the wrong people. They didn't like the sinners that he was mingling and healing. They took issue with every sign that Jesus showed them. They were looking for signs of wonder. He had shown them signs of wonder. They wouldn't accept his signs of wonder, and instead they wanted to stone him even because he did it on a Sabbath day. Oh, how dare he. The next thing they were looking for was deliverance from an enemy. They wanted to see and hear about deliverance from their enemies. Unfortunately, they had an eye on the wrong deliverance. They wanted deliverance from Rome. They wanted deliverance from their political oppressors. But Jesus brought a different deliverance. He brought a deliverance from sin. He had been sent by God to deliver them from the oppression of their sin. Sin is called that slave master that has enslaved us to death. What greater oppressor is there to be freed from than the slave master of sin? That's not the deliverance they wanted. That's not the deliverance they were looking for. They wanted to be the great nation again. They wanted to be like when David was king and like when Solomon was king. And they had all this riches and they had all of this uh, 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 they had plenty of money. They, had, they, had, they were the most powerful nation on earth. Sometimes we're looking for the wrong deliverance from God. He's not so concerned about our political deliverance as much as he is concerned about our spiritual deliverance. Finally, they were looking for a connection of this Messiah to God. That he had been sent by God. They wanted to know that he had been sent by God. Jesus had told them this. And in fact, once again, right here, Jesus connects himself to the Father in heaven again. Essentially telling them, God did send me. And instead of worshiping Jesus as Lord and Messiah and Savior... What does it say they did? They took up stones. They took up stones to stone him. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. So why weren't the signs and the teachings and this connection to God enough for them? Well, we touched on this a little bit last week. This is the third point of confrontation, and it was the problem of unbelief. So the, I haven't been real clear in my points here. The first, the first point of confrontation was a confrontation on, are you really the Christ? And the second one was that uh, the, point of con- proclam- uh, the point of confrontation was a proclamation had been made by Jesus. And here's the third point of confrontation is there was a problem of unbelief. And that's what he tells them. He says this in uh, verse 26. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus hits the nail on the head right here. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. I've 
shown you, I've told you, I've made the connection for you. I don't know what else you need. No, he knows what they need. They need belief, but they're unwilling to believe. And they are unwilling to believe because they are not sheep. And we talked last week about how if they had been his sheep, they would have listened, they would have seen, they would have received, and they would have followed the words of Christ. And the question isn't, why aren't they his sheep? The question is, why do they choose to not believe? And the answer is, coming up, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I think the answer may be, first, verse 27, they follow Him. That's what He says in verse 27. I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Following indicates submission. Following indicates I see my leader and I'm going to follow where you lead. The reason they would not believe the problem of their unbelief first was is they were unwilling to submit to him as a leader. That's a problem of pride. When we're unwilling to submit ourselves to leadership of anyone, it's a problem of pride. Then he goes another step. He says in verse 28, they receive eternal life. We can establish through many biblical texts that eternal life is what? A gift. A gift that we are to receive from God. Why would we reject a gift? Because we don't think we need it. That's, that's why. Oh, I can't accept this. Oh, I, you can't give me this which again is a problem of pride. And then in verse 28 through 29, the last part of verse 28 through 29, he starts talking about how they're in his hand, and no one can snatch them out of his hand, his father's hand, he and his father are one. And here is this evidence of deliverance. Again, they were looking for deliverance from an oppressor. He gives them deliverance. Put yourself in the hand of the Father, put yourself in my hand, and experience the rescue that I am bringing. Jesus is describing how he has rescued those who allow him to do so. And not giving yourself over to be rescued by Jesus is a problem of pride. The problem of unbelief is most commonly an issue of pride. I don't need to be saved, I don't want to follow you, and I don't need your gift. But then look at verse 30 through 31. I and my Father are one. And the Jews took up stones again to stone him. It's absolutely amazing to me how this story started out, or how this scene started out. They surround him, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And in verse 30, I don't know how much more plain he can get, I and the Father, and they know who he's talking about because that's why they take up stones, I and the Father are one. They ask him this question, he answers their question, and now, hey, let's stone you, man, because you answered, we don't like that answer. Jesus wants to question them too, and in fact, he does question them. He says, many good works I've shown you from my Father, for which of these works do I do you now stone me? 
Why are you going to throw rocks at me uh, now? Is it because of the good works I've done? And uh, of course, their answer is, is found in verse 33. They give the reason. It's not because of your works. They say, we don't stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. But isn't this what they asked for? Isn't this the answer they had been asking him for? To tell them who he is? Now, in a way, they're right. Jesus had claimed to be God, and in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish law, that was blasphemy, and it was deserving of being stoned. But only if you are going to reject what Jesus is telling them from, from the very beginning. I am the one that was promised to be sent. I am that one that you're asking about, and I am of God. In claiming his identity again and again, there is clarity in his teaching. That is not the issue. The issue is one of unbelief, and that is an issue for them of pride. At this moment, here they are, stones in hand, ready to throw them at the Son of God. And I don't know about you, but as I read stories like this, and this is not a new story, is it? I mean, this happens to Jesus, it seems like, man, they're trying to stone him again? They're, they're questioning his teaching again? And I've told you this before, if I was God, I would have sent the lightning a long time ago on these folks. You know, a little crack of thunder, and those guys would have brought, uh, dropped the stones, wouldn't they? But that's not how Jesus works. And instead, what we see is not lightning, but love. What we see is mercy, and Jesus brings the mercy, because he is the merciful one. He is the one filled with hesed, loving kindness. What does he say to them? Well, what he does is he kind of diverts their attention. He kind of gives them a, a little thing to think about, long enough for them to hold off on throwing the stones. I already read this, verse 34. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? And what he's doing there is he is quoting Psalm chapter 82, verse 6. And in that, that psalm, God inspires the writer to say, to use the term gods and sons of gods, to refer to lesser beings, human beings, who receive God's word. And Jesus infers if God uses the term gods for something less than God back there in Psalm 82, and they would have known this because they're, they're, law, uh, they're the Pharisees, they know the law of God. If God uses the term gods there in Psalm 82 verse 6 for something less than God, might it not be feasible that he would again use the term God for the one whom he consecrated and sent into the world? That's what he says to them. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, verse 35, to whom the word of God came, referring back to those writers back in Psalms, verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, now he's talking about himself, he, Jesus is the him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? You see what he's saying is Jesus is using an argument from Psalms 82 to say, listen, God called them back in Psalms sons of God. Why can't I use that term now to talk about myself? They were human writers and I'm one that, that God has sent and consecrated and, and, and made for this purpose. Are you sure you're doing the right thing, Mr. Pharisee? 
And it's not necessarily a, a conclusive statement that Jesus is making. Again, I think what he's doing is he's trying to divert their attention for just a moment, for just a moment, so that he can do something he really wants to do. Verse 37, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. You see, his statement about the sons of God back in Psalm 82, all of the, it doesn't really settle the issue. What he does is he keeps the stones flying long enough to give him to do an opportunity to do this, an invitation. You don't believe me? Fine. Believe the works. Believe the works of the one who sent me and be convinced by them. You see, the Jewish people were, they were kind of weak. You show them a sign and wonder and boy, they'll believe you for days on end. And what he is saying is, listen, you don't want to believe my words, that's fine, that's fine. Believe my works and the works of him who sent me, God the Father. What mercy. Jesus doesn't send the lightning, he pleads with them. Fine, reject me, but be saved by understanding who it is that sends me. If you can't see your way clear to grasp my words, to grasp my person, then at least grasp what you can make of my deeds. Why? Because that bit of knowing might turn into a fuller knowing and understanding of who He is, the Savior of the world. This was Jesus' last offer to them, and they came to Him and to seize Him. Did it work? Verse 39, Therefore they sought again to seize Him, but He escaped out of their hand. Well, that's horrible news. Here He is being merciful. Here He is extending an invitation to them, and it doesn't work in the sense that they don't say, hmm, we will believe the works of the one who sent you. We will let those confirm in our heart and our mind who you might be. No, we're just going to go ahead and kill you. But they're not able to do it because God is in control and God will not allow to have happen what he does not want to have happen. And so he escapes out of their hand. And what we read is in verse 40 and through 42 is he goes to the other side of the Jordan. For sake of time, just tell you, he goes to the other side of, the, of Jordan. He preaches. He shows them signs of wonders. They come to him and say, listen, John, they're talking about John the Baptist. He didn't show us any signs, but he told us about you. And we believe that the things that they said about you are true. And what does that last verse say? And many believed in him there. Which was just tells me right here, Jesus wasn't the problem. John the Baptist wasn't the problem. The miracles weren't the problem. Pride was the problem. Unbelief was the problem. Listen, you, you may know someone who is lost, who just continues to reject the gospel of God, and you need to understand it. It's, it's not your preaching. It's, it's not preaching at all. It may not be the words that people hear. It is pride. It is an unwillingness to submit oneself over to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And to that, we must be all the more convinced to pray and pray and pray. But at some point, unfortunately, Jesus is just going to go to the other side of the Jordan. So we, we need to keep on praying. 
So he doesn't, uh, so that lost person doesn't lose that opportunity. Jesus is mercifully continuing to extend an invitation to the lost night and day. Sometimes it's through us. Sometimes it's through our church. Praise the Lord. We need to continue to pray that people will receive that and hear that. I don't know about you, but I don't want people to respond like the Pharisees. I want to see them respond like the other side of the Jordan. And many believed. Wouldn't you love to see people in this church getting saved? I would. Maybe we just need to pray some more. Maybe we need to keep on sending out that message and talking about the truth of Christ in our own lives. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't give up on those Pharisees. You don't give up on us. And thank you, Lord, for how much patience and mercy and loving kindness you just continue to show us. Father, I pray that we might be a convincing testimony to someone of who you are and the truth that you are, the salvation that you are. Lord, I pray for your hand on us, your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Lord, that your will would be done in us as it is in heaven. And it is in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?